0: Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, presented by Library of the Damned. This is Andrew Robertson, and I'm joined today by Michael Rowe, whose novel October is now available from cheesing publications in a variety of editions, including hardcover, print, audiobook, audio CD, and Kindle. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here. So today we're going to be talking about October... And for the listeners, I want to give them a bit of an overview from the cheesing page. So I'm just going to read a little blurb here uh, to to give everyone a sense of of what the book's about. Everyone knows that 16-year-old Mikey Childress is different, a target for bullies since he was a small boy. Everything Mikey does attracts abuse, the way he walks, the way he talks, the way he looks. Everyone knows he's not like the other boys in the rural town of Auburn, the boys who play hockey, who fight, who pursue girls. Only his friend Roxy, a girl almost as isolated as he is, can even guess at the edges of his pain or the depths of his yearning for love. But even the people who hate Mikey couldn't dream of how many secrets he has or how badly he could hurt them if he wanted to, until the night Mikey is pushed beyond endurance by his abusers, the night he makes a pact with dark forces older than time to have terrible vengeance on his enemies, the night he inadvertently opens a doorway that should never ever have been opened and unleashes something into the world that should have... Remain damned.
1: I'm chilled. That's scary.
0: I like it. Do you, Do you think you'll like the book? I think that's good. I think I'll like it. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> okay, so to start with, we're we're going to be talking about some sensitive issues. Right. So I wanted to ask you how you feel about trigger warnings um, when it comes to horror and horror stories.
1: Well, it's funny, you know. I'm. I think I'm probably. Uh, I think I'm going to speak generationally here, and I'm, I'm kind of sort of pre-trigger warning in terms of things like horror. I, I would think that horror readers would have a um, would have a sort of a sixth sense of what they can handle and what they can't. And um, you know, it, it, I, I think you could theoretically have trigger warnings for anything, and God knows you could have trigger warnings for this book. So if it's if you have a trigger you have a trigger warning for devils or bullying or something, I mean, it's a book about bullying. It's about a. a, a gay kid who gets bullied every day in school until he's pushed past the point of, um, past the point of, of surviving, um, and decides to stop it and decides to get revenge in the only way he knows how, which is, uh, by turning to the occult. Um, you know, bullying, bu- bullying is brutal. Um, and, and, and reading about it is, is difficult, but at the same time, I think that that helps. I, I think maybe reading about it just gets, gets more people talking about it and, and gets it out in the open, um. Because in the past it's sort of been hidden and covered up, and and people, particularly gay boys, have been told to suck it up and and sort of stop provoking it themselves.
0: It's it's definitely a difficult topic. So we we are going to be talking about bullying. Sure, there's going to be some language that some listeners may not like. So you be warned. Um, but I think it's it, it is important to talk about mm-hmm. it, and it is important to yeah. have things out in the open. Um, and it is true that horror is something that challenges people's perceptions of what's right and wrong, and maybe what you know. There, there may be a feeling that with horror, you're you're enjoying something horrible. That's right. Um, but it's all in context. I mean, it is it it is written to be enjoyed and understood and thought about, and the book is very thought provoking. Well, I
1: think it's a, I th- I think horror is a wonderful way of of uh, telling stories that need to be told, but giving you the the um, thematic latitude to make them, t- t- to, expand, to expand beyond the theme or bring in elements that actually enlighten and, and, and highlight the theme a little bit more. Um, you know, this book is a supernatural horror novel, but it, 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 even without the supernatural element, it's, it's a portrait of a savage high school bullying of, of a gay boy. And um, I, I, think, I think the fact that it's told in a horror context allowed, allows the reader to experience it um, in, in another context with another dimension added to it. So let me add
0: some context um, for my first question. Sure. You? Um, so bullying being, being a central theme um, of October, uh, for the listeners, I wanted to contextualize it with some short text from the book. Uh, Sean Curtis barely knew Mikey Childress except to know what everyone knew, that he was a faggot. That was all someone like Curtis needed to know. So in the context of horror, why do you think bullying... Has, has been a recurring theme that we've seen over the years, and why, um, even since Stephen King wrote Carrie in 1974, has so little changed in our culture when it comes to bullying?
1: I think first the, the first part of the question is, one of the reasons it's so much a theme in horror is that bullying is so much of a theme in life, and in horror, um, there is, generally speaking, opportunities for the victim to avenge himself in a way that are not available to somebody in, in, a, in, in real life or, or in, a, in a literary context, or, or um, you know, in, in, in a realist context. Um, you have you have the help of the supernatural, or in the case of Carrie, you've got telekinesis. Um, it, it, at the beginning of Carrie, she had no idea that she had telekinesis, and she develops her awareness of it along with the talent throughout the course of the novel. So by the time she unleashes all her powers, it's not like she's been planning to do it forever. It just lashes out much the same way I think bullied kids will lash, would lash out if they have the opportunity to lash out. I think one of the reasons why bullying has has continued and how so little has changed since Carrie came out is that I think people are sadistic. I think adolescents are very cruel, Um, and I think that there's an adult system that supports that cruelty. Uh, If if there's an awareness of bullying now and anti-bullying movements, it's because enough bullied kids grew up to become adults who are aware of the damage that it does. There are studies now that were not available in 1976 and 77, when I was bullied, um, that show how much psychological damage it does to the child as an adult later in life. Uh, you can actually break things in, 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 the, in the kid's psyche and the kid's self-esteem. And the, the, the central theme of, of October um, is that you can, actually, you can actually destroy a moral core with bullying, if you can be cruel enough and if you can find the person that's just the most vulnerable to your specific type of bullying you can actually shatter the moral core and the novel explores what happens when that moral core is shattered when having the pain stop and having something like love happen to you becomes the sole reason for your existence. What doors does that open? And that's kind of what the central theme of the novel is 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 what, what comes in when you open up that door was it
0: difficult to write something like this,
1: um, knowing that you have a personal history with some of the themes in October? It was actually liberating, because I have a, a connection to the themes. I mean, it, it, it's it's scary how easy it is for, for adults who were bullied as kids to actually enter back into that mindset. Um, I was really lucky. I grew up, and I became a happy, successful person, <clears throat> and... Um, I think it gave me an awareness of how much damage can be done. Uh, I go out of my way to be kind whenever I can because of that. Um, But no, I I found it. I found it uh, first of all as a writer. It's a theme that I wanted to explore. So there was the automatic professional thing that clicks in. Um, But no, I didn't. I I, I felt. I felt a degree of distance. I mean, I think one of the things that probably helped was I wasn't exclusively in Mikey's head the entire time. I was in the head of his best friend Roxy, and even in the head of the bully sometimes, so that gave me a bit of a break mm-hmm. from from being in the victim's head
0: a bit of world building mm-hmm. that gives you respite from exactly from maybe an area that you feel like you might be an expert in because I think um, gay men that grew up gay men that grew up in a certain era, and even now, because we're not going to pretend that things are great, no, no. Um, some people may think. Uh, there's no need to come out anymore, that you don't need to worry about the bullying anymore, and I find that most of the people that say that, that are younger, grew up in a cosmopolitan centre.
1: That's right. And I also find a lot of adults say that. There's a lot of, a lot of adult gay men who are past that, and lesbians too, and, and uh, you know, <coughs> queer people in general. Excuse me. <clears throat> I got a terrible cold at London Comic Con last week. Great event, though. Really enjoyed it, but oh my God, whoever gave me that cold, I hope you bought my book too. Well, um, hopefully this is a quote from a fan. So if the fan's cold, out there, it's It would be a nice if it was a quote from a fan. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think um, the thing that makes me angriest as a 57-year-old adult gay man is when I hear people say things like, oh, coming out is so over, or, you know, we're past all this. It doesn't really matter anymore. And then meanwhile, there's some kid in some small town somewhere that's reading this or hearing this, if it's a, it's, if it's a famous person that says it. And they're wondering, well, if it's over, and if we've won all these battles, then why am I crying every day? Why am I bleeding twice a week? You know, why is my life framed in such a way that I'm thinking about suicide all the time? So no, it's not over. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not over. And there's that wonderful phrase, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And until the last bullying stops, we're not free of this of this thing. And um,
0: I think it's, it's something that's very current, and <clears throat> we're still seeing... Suicides of bullied kids, queer or not, yes. in the news, and um, I just want to note that the day that we 're recording this podcast is actually national coming out day and i i 'd gone online to write something, and then mm-hmm. I thought, what do I really write about my story i didn 't yeah. fully come out until I was eighteen, yeah. and even if it was now with all of the you know little monsters and all the movements from celebrities and everything that you see. Um, I don't know if I would have come out until I was 18 again, even if I was 18 now.
1: I wrote on my Facebook page that I came out when I was 19, but, uh, I couldn't have conceived of the changes in the world in terms of, uh, queer liberation, um, at that time. But at the same time, I think that the 57 year old me is a little disappointed that we're not further along Mm -hmm.
0: and then when you consider intersectionality where you've got a queer person of color in a small town i mean there's it things start to pile up exactly it's uh it's never as easy as some people like to make it think but i do think that by talking about about issues like this and with books like october that advance the conversation um we'll slowly get there hopefully maybe not in our lifetimes but to be optimistic we hope for sure um, so back to the book, mm-hmm. our main character, Mikey, is clearly smitten with one of the popular kids mm-hmm. who sees him as a wimpy sissy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in love with him. He's, he's very in love yeah. with him. And in many forms of art, from books to comics to motion pictures and even uh, perhaps most especially pornography, mm-hmm. there's a recurring theme that as gay men we romanticize our aggressors. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you think that is and what keeps drawing some of us to these men that aren't necessarily the best thing for us.
1: Well, I would posit that in the case of somebody like Mikey in October, um, he's in a small high school and he has a fairly small world, uh, not populated by anyone else like him. He manages to get a neurotic and romantic fixation on one of the jocks, uh, which is hardly groundbreaking thematically. I mean, this is something that lots and lots and lots of us go through. But he happens to find the uh, he happens to he happens to get an erotic fixation on the one jock that is cruelest to him one of the two one of the two major bullies, and I think like like an abused spouse he makes excuses for he makes excuses for this person, Um, uh, Dewey Verbinski and is is the other bully, and um, Jim Fields is the one that Mikey has the erotic attraction to and romantic attraction to. And when something terrible happens, he tends to put all of the focus on on Dewey and lets Jim off the hook. So, I mean, I think that um, hopefully this is something we grow out of. Uh, we don't always grow out of it, uh, romancing our aggressors. But um, I, I guess it goes back to that, that damage I was talking about at the beginning, you know, about how we, we get these patterns set up and we don't know how to get over them.
0: So let's flip it on its head now Mm -hmm. um, to talk about how some straight men actually see the wimpy (coughs) sissy as a threat. So another interesting passage for me was about the normal, quote unquote, normal boy's reaction to Mikey (coughs) and the violence that they feel is necessary Mm -hmm. um, because of the way that Mikey makes them feel about themselves, Mm -hmm. I guess. So you write... As though being a source of discomfort for normal boys was provocation enough to warrant violence. And that really struck a chord with me, um, because of how the gay panic defense has been used to defend and and maybe even validate homophobic violence, um, of gay bashers and the news. We always see these displays of fragile masculinity, um, and how that guides the choices some men make some men in positions of great power, politicians, um, and I'd like to know your thoughts on why some men are so afraid of homosexuality that it becomes the monster in their own closet.
1: I think it runs everything, it runs the gamut from um, internalized like fear, fear of their own homosexuality to their sense that it disrupts the aesthetic order. I mean, they're taught from infancy to be a certain kind of man and to be a certain kind of uh, masculine. And when you have someone that flies in the face of that, it upsets the order that they're trying to see in the world um, our, our Our very existence becomes a threat to their visual concept of what male and female is i was a, I was a sissy, I was a pretty femmy kid, and I know that a lot of the guys who bullied me and some of the women too, to be honest, some of the girls <clears throat> what what bothered them the most is that I wasn't t- playing my part in the in the high school mosaic of, of gender gender presentation. Through no fault of my own, but um, it it, ups, it upset their sense of the way the world was supposed to look. I mean, I don't believe that every single homophobe is a closeted uh, a closeted gay man, um, but I do think that the threat to masculinity is interpreted in in many different ways. One of them is the idea that there's someone who's letting down the side, even if it's someone they don't like. It's the weirdest possible thing because it's a little bit like a sports team where you have the, the guy who's the last one picked for the team because he's so terrible. Someone has to take him. And they keep him offside so that he doesn't play the game and lose for his own team. But at the same time, he's bitterly resented, even though he's perfectly re- harmless and out of the way, you know, on the side.
0: That's That's interesting. Now, earlier, you mentioned love. Yes. And that's... Bullying is one theme in the book, and love is another really, really strong theme mm-hmm. in the book. And it's it's a desperate need for love. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one that I could relate to because I wasn't out for most of high school and there was nowhere for me to meet someone like me. And even if I did go to meet someone like me, there would be an inherent danger in that. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, it would have been the early 90s when mm-hmm. I was around the same age as the protagonist in this, uh, this book. Um, so do you think that gay men... Uh, many of us who spend a lot of our formative years in the closet when, when the other teenagers are dating and going out and navigating those social systems, um, do you think that when we when we do actually decide to go for it that we're more, and I'm generalizing here, I know that, so I don't need any emails, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but are we more desperate to find something meaningful? I think we're more ready. I think it's possible that we're ready. I mean, October is written in the dawn of the 90s, or the end of the nineties. That whole nineties period. I actually, I was actually thinking about writing it in in the mid eighties, and I came out in the in the or I, I was you know I, I had my gay adolescence in the seventies, so that's several decades layers of, of repression on top of that, and if you thought it was difficult to find somebody in the nineties, um, it was unmentionable in the seventies, and and the the opprobrium was just off the charts. So I do think there's there's a case, you know, a case of in some cases there's there's a case, you know, to be made that people are more ready or maybe even more desperate uh once they finally come out. I mean, I'm I'm enormously hardened by the numbers of gay teenagers that I'm meeting who are having their own particular sort of fun fucked up teenage years, but they're not doing it in the closet. And they may or may not have boyfriends or girlfriends or at least friends that know about what they are, so I, I think that that's that's a very heartening very heartening thing. but I know that in the in the kind of in the kind of time and in the kind of place that I wrote about in October, um, there was no possibility of that that high school experience was very much like the one that I had in the sense that it was completely airless uh, there was no emotional oxygen, there was no possibility for love, and any misstep was punished brutally. You know, by by the peers, and the adults played their part by turning a blind eye. There's a scene, oddly enough, one of the most chilling scenes in the novel was not uh, was not one of the horror scenes. It was a scene chilling for me writing it. Was an interaction that Mikey and Roxy had with um, with the mother of one of the bullies who just can't stand to look at Mikey. She knows about his reputation, um, and she doesn't know him at all. But his reputation alone for her as an adult woman, an affluent adult woman, was enough for her to just give him the back of her hand, metaphorically. You know, and that that kind of, that that sort of, the further removed the cruelty is from the source, for me, the more emotional impact it had. You know, adults could have helped. Adults could have, um, they could have helped, they could have stopped a lot of the bullying. In my day, it was the idea that this is what boys do and they'll sort it out, which is, the crucible of toxic masculinity right there, you know. But they, they were complicit sometimes. They couldn't actually act, couldn't always act against the gay kids because they were in positions of authority. But they could certainly facilitate the cruelty and they could certainly look the other way if they wanted to. And unfortunately, sometimes they want to. What's, what's <coughs> interesting
0: about that, and, uh, and I think about Mikey's choices and about real-world choices where you, you decide, I have to come out for myself, mm-hmm or um, I'm going to express myself to be who I am, mm-hmm. uh, there's sacrifices that have to be made for that. Yes. And, and without giving anything away, there's sacrifices in the book as well that reflect mm-hmm. the very real um, consequences of someone who's searching for love and for understanding by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, Literally any means necessary. Yeah, yeah. And, and in some ways that hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, so... We touched on revenge fantasies Mm -hmm. before. Um, So what do you think is so attractive about revenge fantasies in this genre?
1: It's funny. There's a young filmmaker in Los Angeles who's doing a screenplay of October, and I think he's brilliant. His name is Dominic Caxton, and I urge everyone to look up his films online. I was reading an interview with him last night, and he, he... was also attracted to Carrie very much because he was bullied and he would have loved to have had revenge. <clears throat> I think part of it is that um, you get, when you're, when, you're a, when you're a child, although you've only lived a certain number of years, that's your entire world. And I think that anything that happens during that time is magnified enormously simply by the fact that there are, not, there are simply not enough years to dilute it you notice that there are not a lot of revenge fantasies and horror with adults.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not, it's not, it's not a, a recurrent theme with adults, but it definitely is when it comes to two kids. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, the cruelty that bullied kids suffer when they're children is so all-encompassing to them at that time that revenge would be like being let off the rack in a torture chamber to be able to sort of turn some of that pain on your bullies some of whom are hurting you in ways that they probably aren't even aware of and it's devastating and you want them to feel it you don't just want it to stop you want them to feel it. you want you want someone to foot the bill nobody else is nobody else is helping you your parents aren't helping you. your your teachers aren't helping you your peers aren't helping you the idea that these bullies are getting away scot-free with no no cost is almost as cruel as the bullying itself. And I think that that's where a lot of revenge fantasies come from. Even in the novel, Mikey endured horrific abuse from his, from his peers and daily abuse from his peers, but it wasn't until this one absolute monstrous act of cruelty and violence that he thought, okay, you know what? Fuck these people. These are really bad people, and I want them to pay for it. <clears throat> and that's, uh, that's where the novel turns. It's interesting that... Um...
0: That when I think it comes to revenge in and, and this type of circumstance, you sometimes feel that it's not enough for the person to understand you and mm-hmm. what you went through. You want them to literally feel the yeah. exact same pain. Yeah because you feel that there's there's no other way for you to understand it mm-hmm. and it's like we all become pinhead for a minute
1: well it's the idea that somehow you someone someone like yourself should be the one that has to suffer the pain and someone else gets away scot free i mean it's jealousy on top of everything else if you break it down mm-hmm. yeah i, like, I think like why that's should totally you be valid. the one why should you be the one to to endure this and someone else doesn't doesn't have to endure anything like it now while we're being a bit emo mm-hmm. um Two of the
0: main characters yeah. are very goth. Yes. Emo for millennials, but yeah. anyways, it's goth yeah. for us. Goth is making a comeback. Mm. Um, and one of them's a witch, mm-hmm. uh, a practicing white witch.
1: A teenage witch.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's also very popular. Yeah, yeah it, very is. it is. Very yeah. current.
1: <laughs> um, did Michael Rowe have goth years? I didn't. I actually predated goth years. But what I discovered was that a lot of the women who were friends of mine at that time probably would have been goth. Um, there's a special kind of friendship that some gay boys get with girls who are just a little bit on the outside themselves, or maybe a lot on the outside themselves. And there's a, there's a commonality. It's a sort of wonderful, wonderful gender mixing that doesn't have the obligation of sexual attraction or romantic attraction, but is also this sort of blissful oasis away from pain and mundanity and normalcy. Um... When I was writing, um, actually, when, when I when I was before I was writing or before I was writing October, I edited a couple of anthologies, uh, Queer Fear and Queer Fear Two, and I met a lot of goths at that time, a lot of young goth women who were writing, and I just thought they were absolutely marvelous. I mean, I thought they were just just marvelous. And and Roxy, is uh, she's an amalgamation of some of those girls that I met, also a friend of mine in Chicago, Lori, who. Um, Probably would have been my Roxy if we'd been in high school together instead of being on opposite sides of the world. Um, but that it, it was—it's an homage in a way to that specific type of that specific type of friendship that I think is unique to that those specific years. You have other friendships. I have wonderful friends with the women. I'm—I'm I'm a member of a writing group that has just with female members except me. Uh, but there's a special magic to um, mixed friendships at that time that is hard to replicate later in life. The way you presented their friendship
0: mm-hmm. um, in the book was very familiar to me. It felt very true, okay. and it felt yeah. very lived. Um, so maybe you were more of the Stevie Nicks uh, sort of mystic. Oh, sure. Oh, there's, some, and then there's so I got, much. I got yeah. I got the aftermath. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
1: there's 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 a lot of uh, there's a lot of me and Mikey. Um, there's this the level of vulnerability that Mikey has is not me. I, I was never that vulnerable to that kind of. <clears throat> that kind of cruelty, I had an imagination, which spared me a lot of pain, because I could go into my head, I could go into my own world, and I could project my, my life as an adult and planet, you know, it, that got me away from from, from the reality of, of my teenage years. Um, you know, Mikey with his horror novels, and, you know, Mikey with his, um, you know, with, with his, his lip-syncing to Stevie Nicks, yeah, <laughs> totally me, probably Olivia <laughs> Newton-John, too, actually, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of me in him, there's, there's me in, in almost all of the characters in that book just to one degree or another, if if I'm not actually one of the characters, I can certainly understand how they thought, even the awful ones. You know, I, I got to know um we we all have these nightmare bullies that we can reach old age and still feel a shiver when we remember them as the monsters of our adolescence. But some of the ones that are kind of indifferent, they're unpleasant and sort of passively bullying, but they're not committed to it. If you're lucky, and I have been very lucky, I've actually gotten to meet some of those men later in life, and said to them, you know, why did you do this? Like, what what were you doing? And th- and they they would say, I didn't know what I was doing. I um I didn't mean that you were gay when I called you a faggot. That was just a bad thing that we called other boys. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how much of a uh, how much of a relief that is, but uh, you know, you 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 can sort of. If you're lucky, you get to talk to them and you get to understand their own fears and their own insecurities and maybe f- forgive if, if that's what you want to do. There's room for that if you, if you try.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that because I had a similar experience. Uh, on the last day of grade school, uh, five boys said they were going to teach me a lesson. <coughs> And so on my way off the school grounds, the largest one stood in my way, and then all the other ones took turns while he held me, uh punching me. And a couple of years later, um I was really good friends with a woman who ended up being his girlfriend, hmm. the uh the ringleader. Mm-hmm. And he apologized and I didn't know why I did it, I'm really sorry, etc. Um and by that point, I'd already been through a couple of different stages where, you know, passing by where I knew he would be, I'd be terrified. And over time, that started to go away. And over a bit of more time, I started to kind of grow a scab and then a thick skin over it. Yeah. So by the time the apology came, um, I just kind of felt sorry for him. Mm-hmm. But I was still a little bit angry in the background. I can, about relate, the, I can yeah. relate
1: to that exactly. That's yeah. exactly how it is.
0: About the person that he was and... Yeah. You know, part of me wanted to to reject the apology, yeah. but the bigger part of me thought, well, if I do that, then what does that say to everyone else that apologizes, mm-hmm. whether it means something mm-hmm. or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad you brought up Olivia Newton-John because she did get into leather at the end of Grace, yeah, so yes. I think she qualifies yeah, she, for this discussion. Then, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I want to—we're talking a bit about the real world, and maybe we'll lighten it up a little bit with real-world horror. Mm-hmm. Um, So what in the world of politics and the news has the most chilling effect on you right now?
1: Hmm, what an interesting question. I think it probably has to do with the fact that one of Donald Trump's worst legacies is the fact that he has ground down the standards so badly that we are all now almost rolling our eyes as atrocity after atrocity after atrocity occurs, and we're used to it. Because he's lowered the bar so much and degraded the American presidency so much. My mother was American, my father was a Canadian diplomat, so this you know, this this political world and, and this cultural world with the United States has been a big part of my life. I wrote for The Advocate for a number of years and, and for the Huffington Post. So US politics are not just a hobby of mine, they're kind of, you know, it's it's kind of like it's it's kind of my métier in a weird sort of a way. And I, I find that the fact that we've gotten used to things that would have been literally unthinkable in the 70s or the 80s or even the 90s or even the early 2000s, things that would, things that would end a presidency are basically news, news, the crawl at the bottom of CNN on a, on a daily basis. And much like bullying and much like some of the themes in this novel, I have a terrible fear that once a standard is destroyed, and once a bar is lowered past a certain point, it doesn't go up again. That becomes the new normal, and that kind of leaves me terrified for the future. Um, here in Canada, um, <laughs> they ca- they canceled the um, they canceled the climate change debate because the Conservatives refused to participate, and I'm thinking this is a party that is seriously considering running the country for the next four years, and they're not willing to participate in a climate change debate. I don't even know where to put that. You know, that's the difference between the kind of horror that I've written about here, or vampires, or werewolves, or goblins, or witches, or whatever, versus the real horror that, you know, that people see when they look out the window. When people say, oh, I'm not political, or I just find political discussion so boring, my thing is, like, well, why don't you just resign from the human race then? Because this is kind of important. I would love a world where politicians were sane and normal. You know, and you, you know who gets to say don't, melt, don't get involved in our politics? Countries like Luxembourg and Belgium that don't cause any trouble at all. But, you know, here in Canada, we have our issues. And, you know, God knows we're, we're, we're living in the shadow of our neighbors to the south, um, whose every action has a literal impact as we, you know, since we're living next door. So, you know, th- those are the real world. And, and that's, just, that's just the tip. That's the, that's the overarching thing. It's the tip of the mountain yeah. iceberg.
0: Yeah. It's, it, it really is. I mean, climate change and politics yeah. are just water and oil right now. Yeah. It's, it's real
1: life scary. And it's, it's kind of interesting because when people say things, uh, you know, Americans often, well, often sometimes they say things like, oh, well, he's not even your president. I don't know why you're even caring about it. It's like, well... Because I don't live in a hole in the ground, you know, and because this is having a a direct impact on the planet, you know, on a day-to-day basis.
0: If they lived in a bubble, it would be different. If we didn't share their air, if we exactly. didn't share their water, I mean, it's, the planet is a resource... And I think that you know you, you actually see more climate change-based um, horror mm-hmm. books and films as yeah. well over the past 20 years even, mm-hmm. but we've known about this for, yeah. for half a century. Well, horror has
1: always been such a wonderful barometer of the times. I mean, it's that's the other thing that, that uh, the realists never want to give us credit for, is that if you want a reflection of the times, check the horror fiction, the good horror fiction of the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fair.
0: Now, one thing I'm going to say now is I've interviewed you before, and it's... So nerve wracking to interview you because in your career you've interviewed some of the greats. So for our listeners, can you tell us about some of the people you interviewed during your time at Fangoria and uh, and with other magazines? Sure. Um, and and what that was like, what that time was like.
1: I'll start out with Stephen King, which was the pinnacle of my of my uh, my Fangoria career. I think I interviewed him on the set of Storm of the Century, and I did a larger piece for the National Post because they gave me four thousand words to write, and even Fangoria, bless her heart, did not have 4,000 words, (laughs) 4,000 extra words available. Um, The generosity of Stephen King, both in the interview um, and with the fans that were collected outside the trailer where we did it, was an object lesson for any any author or any person in public about how to treat people. Um, The grace and the humility and the kindness was off the charts. Um, I remember taping it, and I remember listening to his voice and thinking, this sounds like a really nice, cozy uncle... You know, from Maine, that's just having a cozy fireside chat with you while he talks about these stories. And then I sat down to transcribe it, and the prose itself was gorgeous. I mean, the word selections were perfect. He even had punctuation in place, like it was perfect. There was you, there was no uhs or uhs or anything like that. It was this perfect paragraphed prose, and that was kind of fantastic. John uh, John Carpenter was also incredibly generous and and very um, very kind. Um, Clive Barker, who I, I interviewed through The Advocate, was exceptionally kind to me. Um, he, he blurbed queer fear and had some very kind words to say about *Welsh Fell, my second novel. Um, but once again, there was somebody that I, I had also seen in a, in a book signing contest context and um, just phenomenally generous with people. And, and e- e- signing books for lines and lines of people and taking time to talk to them and treat them like human beings. Um, yeah, no, it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing. I, I, working for Fangoria, which I did for seventeen years, I, I think I did more than a dozen cover stories for them. was was pretty fantastic. Don Mancini, who um, Don Mancini, who uh, is a creator of Chucky, uh, he and I became friends. As did Jamie Blanks, who directed Urban Legend. Those are the two main friendships that I made at, during that time. Aside from my editor Tony Timpone. Um but it was it was amazing. I mean, the, the the thing about journalism. Sometimes when I'm feeling cynical, I wonder if the reason I got into journalism was to turn attention off myself and <clears throat> step out of my own way and focus on other people's lives. And I think there might be some truth to that. The truth of the matter is, I find other people infinitely more interesting than I find myself. I mean, I don't enjoy navel gazing. Um, I know me and I'm not really all that interested in meeting people like me. So I have this incredibly wide range of friends who are very, very different from me, who do things that are different from me, and I think that that's really exciting. And I think that for me was the, uh, it, that that was a huge part of why I got into journalism. Um, writing for The Advocate allowed me to explore gay and lesbian things, we called them gay and lesbian in those days, the pre-LGBTQ plus days. Um, it allowed me to explore a lot of stories um, through that lens. When I was 29 in 1992, I went to Harvard Summer School and did uh, a writing program for eight weeks, so I wanted to find out if I really wanted to be a writer, if that was what I wanted to do. And I moved into Adam's house with a word processor, and I went to a barbershop and had them cut off most of my hair. The reason for that was I did not want anything resembling my old life to be around me. I wanted to look in the mirror and see someone completely different so that I could be apart from myself and make some decisions about my life. During that summer, I met John Preston, who uh, was the creator of, uh, he wrote Mr. Benson, and he was a journalist, and he became a famous uh, anthologist of gay male writing. He published a lot of my early essays and became a mentor. And he was the one that said to me, um, I think it must have been 1993 or something like that, he said, you know, you spend all your time writing about other people's lives, when are you gonna start writing about yourself? you know started telling your old stories and the stories of your people and that got me into the autobiographical essays uh, a lot of my essays are are they start out with me and they explore other other things um and that was a really smart thing that John said you know to get to know your own people uh, it's a kind of thought that is difficult to conceive of these days when the internet basically opens the world at your fingertips Back in those days, we were still writing letters and uh, word processors were still, you know, before they were computers, they were word processors and we processed words. We didn't spend hours and hours and hours living online. So the idea of exploring a world that was right in front of me was really, really interesting. And that, I think, was, a, was a pretty much of a defining part of my, uh, of my writing career, my nonfiction writing career especially. So now we've looked back, now looking forward, <clears throat> you've covered witches, there's been
0: vampires, there's been ghosts, there's been demons. Can you give us a sense of either what's next or um with the film being adapted from October what we can expect in the near future from you?
1: Well, I'm hoping that the I'm hoping that the film does happen. I think Dominic Haxton is an absolutely brilliant filmmaker and I was actually a fan of his before he reached out to me, which is the thing that makes a huge amount of difference. Of course. Um you know, it's not like some some unknown filmmaker said, "Oh, I'd like to make a film out of your your book." Like I I'd, I'd seen this guy's films and I was moved by them and affected by them, and I knew who he was when he called, which is great, so I'm letting that go where it goes, and I'm, I'm eager to see what happens with that. The novel that I'm working on now, which I've been working on for a very, very, very long time, and my agent is just, must be on a mission from God to put up with me this long, but it's basically about, uh, it's about angels, and uh, devils, and the war in heaven, and the idea that God really doesn't care about people very much, that God is like the like a Roger Moore-looking divorced dad who gets a second family and moves on from his original kids, who were the angels. Um, in, in, this, in this novel, the, um, it, it's basically about the indifference of the divine to human life and, once again, in a weird sort of a way, the cruelty that is possible when you have an indifference to its existence. Uh, it's set in a, Part of it is set in a boarding school, very much like the one I went to. Um, and it follows uh, the lives and fortunes of the friendships of three guys as they become adults, one of whom is a psychopath um, with, uh, as it turns out, uh, an ability to work miracles. So we'll see what happens with that. But I really want to—I want a chance to explore adult adult male friendships. I haven't really had a chance to do that yet. I've written a lot about families and kids, but I would like to write about a group of guys who start out friends as they, in their teenage years and and uh, and how the, how that changes with the with the events of the story
0: okay well that's something for everyone to look forward to thank you mostly so much mostly
1: me I sure hope I finish it this winter that's my goal and hopefully just please just I just want to finish this book then I can do anything else well maybe a year from now we can do this again I would love that thank you so much for being on the podcast Michael always
0: a pleasure thank you so much for having me you can find Michael's books online at cheesingpub.com slash Michael row that's R-O-W-E and for our listeners uh, you can find the Great Lakes Horror Company on Facebook. Just search for us by name, and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, um, if you have a question or idea for a future show, please email us at glhc at horror-writers.ca. Uh, you can also actually find Michael's books on Amazon. So ca com, any of the Amazons, you can find him there. Uh, the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast is sponsored by libraryofthedam.com. It was created by yours cruelly and is produced by Sefer Jeron, Monica S. Kubler, and Jason White. Our theme music, which you'll be hearing in a moment, has been provided by Leslie Kurvost. And until next time, unpleasant dreams.